Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode contains references to war and everything that goes with it. Listener discretion is advised. Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 124, The Element of Surprise. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara, on the rohe of Mueupoko, Taranaki Whanui, Te Atiawa and Ngāti Toa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons, if you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash Last time, we talked about some of the strategies Māori used in battle, in particular, field battles. However, these were quite rare, so today we're going to cover the much more common form of combat, parsieges. In particular, how they were conducted, and what strategies were used. Well, I say siege, but that isn't exactly the correct word to use, since that kind of implies sitting around a castle, or in our case a pa, and trying to starve out the defenders until they surrender. That usually takes quite a long time, so Māori weren't really all that fond of this style of warfare and instead used other methods to claim the pa, either attacking it directly or drawing the defenders out somehow. To understand how all of this worked, we need to sidestep a little to cover the most important aspect of pre-European Māori warfare, which up until now I've only really mentioned in passing. That is, surprise and deception. Now, of course, the element of surprise, ambush, and tricking your enemy are all key parts of military strategy all across the globe and throughout history. But for Māori, these were absolutely core parts of warfare all across the motu. 
I really cannot understate how prevalent and important they were, even after the introduction of firearms and the huge strategic change that brought. Since combat was almost entirely hand-to-hand and close quarters, getting the jump on the enemy could make a huge difference in battle. One common scenario was when Manuhiri arrived on the marae, you were never quite sure what their intention was. Were they here to trade, chat, or were they here to attack you? Hence why there was a whole protocol around porphyry and the widow. Guests often went to feasts fully armed, as it wasn't unheard of that the host or visitors would attempt to kill each other if they had cause to do so. A woman being escorted to her wedding would also have a guard to protect her just in case things went sour. Even Tangihanga weren't exempt from this, with Best describing how one rangatira got an invite to a tangi and went with a fully armed guard, so that when he got there, he could kill the hosts, which he did. Teroparaha was known to employ this tactic as well. He invited the defenders of a pa belonging to Nati Ira in Wairarapa to come out and feast with him to make peace. They did so, and when they sat down and began to eat, Teroparaha gave a signal for his men to draw their concealed weapons and slaughter the 350 guests. Often, when people were killed during feasts, the toa would alternate the seating of friend and enemy, so that each soldier could just grab the person to their left or right and kill them. This apparently happened to Marion Dufresne's crew, where some Māori saw them trying to pull in a big sen net, and they rode out to help them since they were well skilled in that. The Māori took up positions in an alternating fashion, Māori, European, Māori, European, etc., to help pull the net in. After a few pulls, each Māori grabbed a patu and struck the man in front of them on the head. This tactic was pretty common and quite well known, so when someone noticed any seating arrangements that involved placing people of alternating allegiance next to each other, it immediately raised suspicions. To this end, deception was a huge part of Māori warfare, such as disguising oneself to be an enemy toa so that they could sneak into a pā or kaina, such as in one case where some men were trying to infiltrate a pā, so they picked up some ferns and other items to make it look like they were carrying human flesh on their backs, which tricked the defenders into thinking that their own men were coming back after a successful raid. So, the supposed friends were let in, causing their guard to be lowered, and allowing the attackers to claim the par. In another case, a group of toa began singing and acting rather carefree, making the people in the par think that some of their friends had come to visit them, so they raced out of the par to greet them and were promptly killed. Sometimes, toa might disguise themselves as ordinary people working the field and attack enemies with their farming tools when they came too close. Or they might pretend to be woodcutters and hide their weapons by tying them to their ankles. Or they could be friendly fishermen and then attempt to drown the enemy in their nets. Another tactic, which I found really interesting, was similar to the famous Trojan horse. 
The idea was to make a fake whale out of kuri skins that they would lay on the sand and then a small group would hide within it. This would be done during the night so that the enemy didn't see them. And then in the dim morning light when seen from a distance, this large dark mass would look like a whale had been beached. Whale strandings were quite rare, and so the resources within were pretty valuable. Things like meat, teeth, and bones, which were used for all sorts of prestigious items. As such, if a par caught sight of a stranded whale, there was a good chance they would come out to take a look to get those sought-after materials. Unfortunately for them, hundreds of toa would be hidden inside the whale, and would overwhelm those who came to investigate. Allegedly, the iwi that came up with this strategy was Nati Kuri. Instead of having one large mass that looked like a single whale that everyone packed into, a variation on this strategy was to have each toa lay under their own black mat on the beach, which would look like seals or a pod of smaller pilot whales from a distance. Then, once the enemy got near, they would flick the mats off and attack them. Hopefully what you're picking up here is that the only limitation that they had was their own imagination. Sometimes, multiple ambushes would be set up along a route for maximum damage. A small group would be sent to pick a fight and then make a tactical retreat past all of the ambush sites. In theory, the enemy would give chase to the quote-unquote retreating party, with the ambushers hidden at each station watching as they ran past, until they got to the furthest most ambush. Then, the trap would spring. The retreating party would stop, turn around, and attack their pursuers, aided by their friends who had jumped out of the bushes to join them. The enemy, probably now outnumbered, would turn tail and run back to their pa, getting jumped by every other group that they hadn't seen along the way. Another strategy in ambushes was to duck into the ferns and disappear, only to reappear from another flank from a different set of ferns. In the chaos of battle, this would give the impression of a larger attacking force, and that they were surrounded. In saying that, we know the strategy was used a fair amount on Europeans, but we don't actually know how often it was used prior to their arrival, if it was used at all. These managed retreats, called takari, were common in warfare intent on drawing the enemy into an ambush. Since surprise was such a key element, Toa went to great efforts to maintain it. Kuriskin mats or manuka may be laid down to muffle the sound of their feet. If they were approaching a pa at night, their presence may spook any nocturnal birds, resulting in them not making calls, which the enemy may notice. So, the approaching towa would imitate the calls to keep the ruse up, which also helped in covering the sounds of their steps. Additionally, if someone happened to just encounter the towa perchance while travelling or gathering food, they were often killed so that they couldn't run back to convey how close the attack was. This was the flying fish across the bow that we spoke about in a previous episode. 
The element of surprise was also kept based on the weapons Māori used. A lack of projectile weapons meant no man could fire off early and alert the enemy before everyone was properly in position. And since patu and other short weapons were common, these could be easily concealed until the right moment if deception was involved. Despite these efforts, it was usually pretty hard to keep the attack in general under wraps, as rumours would likely get back to the defenders, or someone related to them from the other side would warn them. Or even sometimes, a messenger from the attackers may be sent to formally declare their advance. As we've mentioned in the past, it was really difficult to keep an attack under wraps. The enemy would pretty much always find out that it was coming. So Towa didn't really put a huge amount of effort into keeping the attack in general under wraps. Exactly when and how this attack would come was more what they were trying to hide. Once the pa was under siege, if someone within the walls was related to those attacking, they may call out to them and invite them to leave and join them. Best described an instance of this happening where the person was killed by those within the walls, because they were scared that he would tell the attackers that they were very low on food. Of course, a big advantage of surprise attacks and ambushes is that they could be easily executed by a small group under one rangatira, and, if done correctly, could have a smaller force defeat a larger one. Thus, its use was driven by, and also helping to drive, the aspect of hapu being the main social unit for warfare, also tying into the organisational, logistical, and supply challenges that we spoke about last episode. Sometimes, one particularly renowned man, and maybe a couple of his mates, would be sent on their own to an enemy village to take out any stragglers in the area. Or, potentially, they would just rush through the village and kill whoever they came across before escaping out into the bush. So, more broadly, how does all of this relate to pa? Well, trying to capture a pa, if it was made and defended well, was almost impossible, since Māori didn't have any type of siege engines. Although direct assault was an option, capturing a pa by sheer force alone was difficult, costly, and usually had very little chance of success. So most often, they were taken through some form of cunning. That's not to say that pa weren't taken by direct assaults, but this was usually by a rangatira who was especially courageous, or perhaps depending on your perspective, especially foolhardy. And even then, there was still an element of deception and strategy. For example, a towa may be split up, attacking from multiple sides, to try and draw the defenders away from the place where the main force was attacking, using a smaller force as a distraction. Alternately, the distraction force could retreat to try and get the enemy to chase them and abandon the pa entirely, either for the main force to take it behind their backs, or to draw the majority of the defenders into an ambush. 
Sometimes the defenders might come out of the pa and try to use a similar tactic on the enemy camp, or to set their own ambush. Again, the tactical retreat was a common strategy, but sometimes the retreat was real, and so an enterprising chief, wanting to turn the tide back in his favour, may rally some men to his side and set up an ambush for the pursuing enemy to take advantage of a bad situation. Another option was that if scouts determined that the walls might be scalable, sometimes ladders would be made so that a few toa could sneak up, place them, and stealthily enter the pa to open the gate for the main force. Night attacks did occur, but they were probably rare. Light pollution wasn't a thing in this day and age, so when it was nighttime, it was pitch black. It's quite hard to do anything really, let alone a coordinated military operation, when you can't see a damn thing. So, because of that, the crack of dawn was considered a good time to begin an offensive. Which makes sense, considering dawn is a good time to get the jump on your enemy. You could get in position under the cover of darkness, and when you did spring the trap, the enemy would likely be a bit sleepy and disorganised. There may also have been a spiritual element as well, with the dawn being associated with good things. Fighting in the low light of the dawn was still a little dicey though, so sometimes Toa would wrap rangiora leaves around their head, with the white side facing out, so they could more easily distinguish friend from foe. These strategies were all well and good if they worked, but what if you tried them and the defenders managed to push you back? What if you couldn't get the element of surprise again? How would you take the par? As mentioned, directly attacking the gates or walls was pretty rare. It was hard to do, would result in a huge loss of life, and the defenders would be at the advantage behind the walls. One option was to simply give up and leave, which sometimes they did. It could just be not worth it to try again. Sunk cost fallacy and all that. Another was to try alternate methods like deception. For example, pretending to be friends as they approach the pa to get them to open the gates. But the defenders may not fall for it if their hackles were already raised due to a previous attack. Fire was sometimes employed, if you didn't care too much about keeping the defences or buildings intact, but that was pretty dangerous, especially if it got out of control and leapt to the nearby forest. Apparently, sapping was also used on occasion, if the ground would allow for it. The practice of digging a tunnel under the walls to destabilise them or get the towa under the walls and inside the par. Or you could just throw a rope over the palisade and just try to yank the fucker down. In general, sieges weren't too long, one of the longest recorded being seven months, though best records a few that were much longer. Most were a lot shorter, and won or lost much more decisively. Surrounding a par and starving the defenders was a legit strategy. But of course, the attacking army would need to be fed during that time as well. So, 
it wasn't always feasible to engage in a protracted siege. Usually, it was better to force the Pa to surrender through negotiation, or by attacking and taking it forcefully. On top of that, the lack of an organised command structure and the reliance on the mana of rangatira and consensus meant that if a siege went on for too long, then the Toa may slowly disband if they felt it wasn't in their personal interests to keep going. If a Toa had few supplies, they would try to conceal this fact from the Pa to ensure their resolve wasn't strengthened. This could include lighting more fires to make them think they had food to cook, or they could pee into gourds and then tip them out in the view of the pa to indicate that they had lots of water. They may also cut up stems of tutu to make them look like aruhe and stack them up. Naturally, since surprise and deception was a common strategy, defences to try and reduce opportunity for it, or to negate it entirely, were desired in pa. And in fact, the idea of a pa is the first step in that. Just the simple act of putting walls around your village stops a towa from just rushing into your kaina and doing what they will which did happen often for undefended villages. Adding other defences, like sentries and watchtowers, also helped, often giving them a loud instrument to play should they spot something or suddenly become aware of the lack of bird calls, or heard unusual ones. To this end, Tuhoi had three words for three separate types of calls from Kaka, a native parrot. One was the distinctive ordinary scream that they make, another for when multiple birds are in a scrap, and a third for when the birds get startled by something, such as a lot of blokes trudging through their territory. Sentries could also be placed in advantageous positions outside the pa to give a view of approaching groups, such as on the tops of hills near the pa, sometimes within sight of it, so they could get the pa's attention. From their vantage point, they might have a view of the valley below and see some people walking through it. They could then turn to the pa, which was in view but couldn't see the group, and relay information about them. To do this, they would have a sort of pre-agreed code of what different signals meant. For example, if the sentry waved their arms three times, it indicated that the group was big. If he crossed his arms in front of his head, it meant that the group looked hostile. If he clasped his hands in front of his chest three times, it meant the group was a mix of men, women, and children. This would be communicated to the watchman at the pa itself, who presumably then relayed that to the rangatira or some other leader. Of course, this only really worked during the day, but sentries would sometimes be placed at night, occasionally given a relief partway through, though it wasn't uncommon to do an all-nighter, in which case he might have to wander around the defences instead of staying in the same spot the whole time. However, during the night, the sentry's job was less about spotting the enemy. Again, it would be pitch black, they couldn't see anything. And instead, be more about letting the enemy know that the pa was on alert and could be roused if needed. 
to this end, the sentries would often sing waiata, or blow their pukaia, or strike the pahu. The waiata could be short or long. Here is an example of the first lines of one. This is the pa. These the high palisades, bound with the forest vines. And here within am I, singing my song. Another, from Tuhoi, went, Be watchful, be alert. Be alert in the terrace over there. Be alert in this terrace. Oh, be watchful. These came from Elston Best's writings, and he pretty much never records what the melodies were of Waiata that he notes down, hence why I've not tried to do it myself. Unlike Europeans, an officer wouldn't come round to check if the sentries were doing their job, or if they'd fallen asleep. Instead, these songs, or regular interval toots on the pukaya, or wax on the pahu, would indicate they were still doing the rounds. So the noises they were making also served to reassure those within the pa that they were safe. What if the watchman wasn't making any noise? Well, there doesn't seem to have been punishments if sentries were shirking duties or napping while on guard, so it was reasonably common for someone to have a kip in their tower, or if it was cold, to spend most of the time around a fire in their fuddy. As such, enemies would take advantage of a guard who was being a bit lax, since the lack of trumpet blaring or someone singing could indicate there wasn't a sentry on duty, or that he was doing something else. This was all part of that same idea that Māori had no strict military in the western sense, and everything was governed by consensus. There's also just a strong societal pressure to knowing that if you don't do your job as a sentry properly, your pa may be captured, and your family and friends may die or be put into slavery, and it would be, at least in part, your fault. Occasionally, though, a sentry wouldn't be posted at all, possibly during periods of extended peace. Along with static defences, a good way to counter an enemy that was intent on surprising you was to take the initiative away from them and give it to yourself. That is to say, be aggressive and act first. Sitting in a fort kind of negates both of these things, since the enemy gets to choose the time of battle. So, to retain some initiative, sometimes a towa in a pa would emerge from the gates and try to ambush the enemy themselves. One particular instance of this was, well, shall we say it was a bit unusual. Quote, A notable stratagem enabling a garrison to surprise its assailants is said to have been employed by Takitaki an 18th century Nate Fare chief, at a small earthenwork fortification on a bluff overlooking the Firinaki River. It seems that Takitaki's fort was attacked one morning by a Nati Kahununu force, and Takitaki came out naked and stood on the defensive earthwork, where he could be seen by the attackers. In his hand, he held his erect penis. The Māori in general seems to have recognised an erect penis as a sign of courage, and the sight of Takitaki's penis so filled the enemy with admiration that they withheld the attack for a while. 
The lull in the attack enabled a portion of the garrison to leave the fort and attack the Natikahununu in the rear. The Natikahununu were of course defeated, and even yet, Atakitaki's descendants, known as Noe Uri or Takitaki Ure Roa, the people of Takitake whose penis was long. End quote. While this particular tactic was flashy, <laughs> it is probably an outlier, with reconnaissance and knowledge of the impending attack being generally more vital in defending a par. Next time, we conclude our talks about war by discussing what happened in the immediate aftermath of battle and how Māori made peace. Not only that, we bring our tale of the pre-European Māori era to an end, closing the first chapter of Aotearoa's history. To that end, I will be doing a Q&A session to fully round out this period. So, if you have any questions or things you want me to expand on about anything we have covered over the last holy shit it's been five years, please do send me an email to historyaltiroa at gmail.com. You can also use the contact form on historyaltiroa.com. Just click the menu in the top right, click contact and fill out that form. And of course you can find all those usual helpful resources like transcripts and sources. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, Airitu atu, Oki tu mai. See you next time.